Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, head of Greater China Sovereigns at Fitch Ratings. So far this year, we've done two podcasts on Hong Kong, quite a few on mainland China's economy, but until today, we have yet to do a podcast on Macau. So with that in mind, I'm pleased to introduce Colin Mansfield, who leads Fitch's U.S. gaming, lodging, and leisure corporate coverage. Colin is based in Boston and was recently named into Global Gaming Business Magazine's 2022 Class of Emerging Leaders of Gaming 40 Under 40. Colin, thank you very much for joining the podcast and for your willingness to be the inaugural guest to discuss Macau and its all-important gaming sector. Thanks, Andrew. Really happy to be here. The Macau Special Administrative Region is a pretty small place with a population of less than 1 million and a land area of about 33 square kilometers. And it sits along the southern coast of China's Guangdong province. Before the pandemic, Macau was home to the largest gaming sector in the world, which alone accounted for about half of the territory's GDP. Clearly, a lot has changed since this time and against the backdrop of China's strict zero COVID policy, which is definitely a topic I hope we can discuss uh, in depth today. But before we do that, I was hoping we could start with a little bit of history. I believe gambling is, for the most part, illegal in mainland China. So I'd be curious if you could help our listeners understand when did Macau's gaming sector take off in the first place? And how did it take off? Yeah, you're exactly right, Andrew, that on mainland China, gambling is illegal. Uh, there are a couple of lotteries that, that are illegal, but for the most part, casino gaming, as most people think of, you know, table games, slot machines, those sorts of things, uh, that activity is, is illegal on mainland China. Enter Macau, which is very close to mainland China in proximity, which did have gambling legalized around the mid-1800s, actually when it was still under Portuguese rule. So as you progressed through the 20th century, there were various monopolies in terms of operators who were running the gaming operations there. And, and even back then, it was a pretty large source of government income like it is today. And in 1999, after the handover of the region back to China as a special administrative region, the government passed in 2001 the gaming law that we know today, which is basically defined the 20-year concessions that then went out for public tender. So... When the tenders went out, three were awarded from another number of operators that actually tried to, to get concessions. Those three then in turn sold three sub-concessions, and in return, they promised to invest basically billions of dollars of capital investment to grow Macau's gaming industry and, and tourism industry. In 2006, just to put some of these numbers in perspective, the market size was about $7 billion U.S. dollars in terms of gross gaming revenue. That number peaked at $48 billion in 2014, quite a material amount of growth, and was about $37 billion heading into the pandemic. And this compares to some other really large gaming markets globally, but obviously much, much bigger. Las Vegas here in the United States, that size is about $8 billion, and Singapore is about $3.5 billion. So clearly the, the largest gaming market in the world pre-pandemic with some of the best critical mass of casinos 
Well, thank you for that interesting bit of history and uh, the quick snapshot on how things have developed. Sounds like a bit of a roller coaster ride over those uh, recent years. Would you mind giving us a little bit of background on how Macau's gaming industry is structured? I think you mentioned there were six operators in total, but I'd be curious to know who owns and runs them and who is their target client base. So yeah, there's six operators. Basically, the way to think about them, there's Galaxy, Sands China, Melco Resorts, Win Macau, SJM, and MGM China. And collectively between them, they have 42 casinos now on Macau. More recently, the development has been on the Kotai Strip, uh, but all the operators do have properties still on the peninsula as well, too. Uh, they're actually all publicly traded, too, on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So there's various float percentages from parent companies that own these Macau operating subsidiaries, but they are publicly traded. And their main businesses, as you would expect, is basically operating and running casino integrated resorts, some of them with other operations in other global gaming jurisdictions as well, too. So the three U.S. companies, though, they have controlling ownership of the Hong Kong listed holding companies that own the Macau operating subsidiaries. And those ownership percentages are anywhere from 50 to 70%. So clearly still being controlled by you know, the U.S. parent companies. And then there are a number of them actually that do have ties back to the legacy monopoly casino operator before the market was liberated in 2001, which was run by Stanley Ho. And that's SJM, MGM China, and Melco. I mean, Macau sits off the southern coast of China. It's a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China. So, I mean, is it fair to say that most of the clients are from mainland China? Or how would you characterize um, the source of visitation to Macau? Absolutely. I think that's a good way to think about it. About 90% of the visitation comes directly from mainland China or through Hong Kong, which depending on where you live in mainland China, sometimes that might be an easier route to get into Macau. But for all intensive purposes, the, the bread and butter and the core gamer down in Macau comes from mainland China. Why don't we fast forward to the present day? Since casinos are large indoor spaces where many people congregate, I suppose it should not come as a surprise to any of us that it was among the industries most affected by the pandemic. But I think Macau's gaming sector has faced some unique challenges in this regard. Could you walk us through the impact the pandemic has had on Macau's gaming sector? And perhaps where does the recovery stand today? It's had quite a substantial impact on the Macau gaming industry. And a lot of that stems from the near collapse of visitation to Macau. I think what's really been a challenge for the gaming industry in Macau is the fact that for someone from mainland China to get into Macau, you still need a visa to get there. And there is a cross-border checkpoint, which has created a lot of travel friction. We see in a lot of other gaming jurisdictions today and has been a differentiator in terms of recovery trajectories of the market. So obviously, you know, majority, as we talked about before, majority of visitation and gaming from in Macau comes from, from mainland China and then effectively through Hong Kong as well, too. So once you had a collapse of visitation, you had a collapse of gaming revenue as well, too. So where we stand today, visitation reached about 30% of normalized levels in mid-2021. It felt like we were starting to get a little bit out of the woods and getting a little bit of momentum. But that, I think, is where you really had a bifurcation in the recovery trajectories of 
gaming jurisdictions with Macau becoming a little bit more stagnant and then taking a step back over these last few months, whereas other jurisdictions across the world that saw travel really open up in a much easier fashion really, really started to recover in a much more meaningful way. And I'll use a couple of examples of where things have recovered quite quickly. Uh, Here in the U.S. is a big one. We look at Las Vegas Strip, which we talked about a little bit before being one of the biggest markets here in the United States. When we think about how long it took them to get back to pre-pandemic levels of gaming demand, depending on how you measure it, and this is how I measure it and think about it, the United States had a pretty big vaccination rollout in the spring of 2021. It only took until about mid-2021 for Las Vegas to hit pre-pandemic levels of gaming demand. So pretty shortly after the population was vaccinated. But also keep in mind, here in the United States, it's very easy for us to move between states. There's no testing requirements or quarantine requirements or anything like that. If if I want to get on a plane and fly to Las Vegas, which is a different state on the other side of the country, I can do it no problem. So I think that played a big part in how quickly Las Vegas recovered. Then we look at a country like Canada, which has seen a similar recovery trajectory in terms of timing as the United States. It just started a little bit later because that government was a little bit more conservative in terms of operating restrictions for places like casinos for a little bit longer than we were in the United States. And you're just starting to see that country in terms of gaming demand start to be more normalized. And Singapore is the last example we always point to. Singapore also benefited from having a a local population base that sort of rediscovered casino gaming, if you will, and, and really provided a nice base business while the country really reduced its international inbound visitation. But you're really starting to see Singapore ramp up quickly now that international travel is much easier there. And I think that really started back in April with the vaccinated travel lanes that opened up. And just to give you some facts on that. If we look at Marina Bay Sands, which is a property that Las Vegas Sands owns, they had a really solid second quarter in 2022, which is when international travel was really started to allow uh, or was really allowed to happen in a much easier fashion. And those figures are almost normalized now in terms of pre-pandemic levels. So basically a long way of saying that The gaming demand is there when travel to and from these casinos is much easier. I think that's been proven out. But in terms of Macau, the recovery has been stagnant because it's still challenging in terms of getting into Macau, in terms of testing requirements. Previously, there were quarantine requirements, and those sorts of things have really hindered visitation and effectively the recovery in gaming revenue. That's really interesting background. I guess because of that cross-border checkpoint, it definitely makes sense that the recovery would be much slower. Even domestic travel within mainland China itself um, has definitely suffered during the pandemic. It's gone in through waves where it's uh, there's been robust domestic travel, but then with the rise in, in outbreaks in selected parts of the country, you know, people have basically been very cautious about leaving their province because they might have to do tests when they come back. What happens if you get stuck somewhere? We had that incident in Hainan not long ago. So I think it all makes sense within the context of continued uh, pandemic-related restrictions in the mainland and, and of course, in the special administrative regions of Macau and, and Hong Kong as well. So I guess maybe against this backdrop, it'd be really interesting to hear how the Macau-based gaming operators have been able to weather this downturn. You said that there's still 
just at 30% of the pre-pandemic uh, level of activity. Uh, have any run into financial troubles as a result of this subdued activity? They haven't yet. And I think there's a couple things that have really supported the operating entities down there in terms of what riding out the storm and being able to weather the disruption for as long for as long as they have. So the first thing to keep in mind is that these companies are, for the most part, part of much larger enterprises that might have global operations elsewhere that are generating more normalized cash flow and present an opportunity to support weaker entities within the structure, which uh, I'll get into in a little bit. But as we entered the pandemic, and this is something that was consistent across all of global gaming. This isn't just something specific to Macau, but what you saw is a lot of companies pull down on their revolving credit facilities just as a precaution to bolster their liquidity because casinos were closed and no one knew how long they were going to stay closed. So when you go into a zero revenue environment, none of these businesses, and this transcends outside of the casino industry, but businesses weren't designed to withstand zero revenue environments. It's just something that's not in people's downturn playbooks. So what you saw was a lot of companies, including those in Macau, really bolstered their liquidity, perhaps already had a good amount of liquidity heading into anyways. And that allowed them to ride out the storm when you couple that with the fact that the Macau companies did a fantastic job of really reducing their cash burn and their their operating expenses as best they can. Now, what's interesting, and this is very different than a lot of other gaming jurisdictions and broader leisure and entertainment industries and how they approach the pandemic, is that for the most part, the the local population that is employed by these casinos, and they're a very big employer of, of the local population, they kept them on the payroll. And they continued to pay them even though the gaming demand wasn't there. And that's a very big cash flow drag, if you will. So it's quite impressive that the companies were able to stem the losses as best as they could, but also knowing the fact that they kept a majority of the payroll going to make sure that employment did not skyrocket or anything like that. I was briefly looking at the unemployment numbers of Macau, and I believe they're around 4%, which was up from 2% heading into pre-pandemic. And that's starkly different than what we saw you know, in other jurisdictions where you saw mass furloughs or layoffs and slowly you start to hire people back as gaming demand normalizes. So I think that's something that has been quite impressive with these companies. They've been able to keep everybody on the payroll, but at the same time, that comes at a cost. We're starting to get to the point where the cash burn, you're starting to see some financial support from their stronger parents. We saw that a couple over the last few months, Las Vegas Sands and Win resorts, which have much more substantial liquidity at their parent entities or perhaps operations elsewhere in the world that are generating good cash flows. We saw them enter into subordinated loan agreements with the Macau entities as a mechanism to get cash down into those boxes to help support the cash burn and pay debt service and operating expenses and those sorts of things. So no significant financial trouble yet. I think we look at 2024 as a year where the rubber hits the road a little bit. That's when you're starting to see some bigger maturities out of the Hong Kong listed entities and some of the parent entities start to mature. MGM China, Win Macau, Las Vegas Sands Corp, which is the parent entity. Those have some maturities starting to come due in 2024. But you did see Studio City actually issue debt in February of 2022. They issued secured notes. And so they 
had capital markets access, but obviously the longer that visitation and revenue in Macau remains depressed, the situation becomes a little bit more precarious. Interesting. I was just actually looking up some of the macro data on Macau before our conversation. And before the pandemic, about 20% of employment uh, was was linked to the gaming sector directly. It's pretty interesting to, to hear that they did not do any major layoffs. It sounds like in a way the casinos were basically conducting counter-cyclical macro policy for the government in, in, in some ways. But it sounds like you said that there is basically cash burn. So it's it's not that the casinos are still profitable, even though they're only at 30% of pre-pandemic revenues. It's just that they had sufficient liquidity to continue to run the operations and, and make cuts elsewhere. Is that more or less what's been going on? Correct. And you actually did see a period in mid-2021 where they were profitable and Profitability margins got to about half of what they usually are in pre-pandemic levels. Uh, And that's when visitation was starting to come back and got to that 30% level of normalized amount. So mid-2021 was when, again, it started to feel like we were almost out of the woods. EBITDA was positive. Visitation was starting to come back. But obviously, we had some steps back with viral variants and a continuation of some of the more restrictive travel policies that has really stagnated the industry. Well, I guess with that, uh, with those comments in mind, it's probably worth spending a few minutes on zero COVID itself. On the mainland, as I'm sure most listeners are well aware, the policy still appears to be an unswerving political priority. And this includes regular PCR testing, strict border controls, as we've already discussed, and even occasional lockdowns of cities or districts within cities when large outbreaks do occur. Would you mind giving us a brief snapshot of what zero COVID looks like in Macau today? Today, and I'll preface this by stating that it's been quite volatile over the last couple of years. So there's been, you know, obviously fits and starts, step forward, step back. Uh, But the latest and greatest right now is that things are starting to be eased a little bit after the summer outbreaks. And actually, Macau did shut down their casinos again for about a week during the summer, given an outbreak that they had. And now you're starting to see some of those policies start to be eased a little bit as case counts obviously go way down. And they've done a number of mass testings and things like that. So currently, the way it sits today, if you're coming from mainland China, there is no current quarantine requirement when you get into Macau, which is good. That's a good development in terms of supporting visitation. And I believe the the testing requirement to enter is within 48 hours, so also eased from the 24 hours that it had been previously. So what we expect is that as those travel restrictions continue to get eased a little bit more, you know, maybe you go from 48-hour testing requirement to seven days, all those sorts of things help anybody from the mainland who wants to plan a trip down into Macau to be able to go and do that with some degree of confidence that they're going to be able to get there and they're not going to get stuck there. The quarantine requirement, I think, is very meaningful because that obviously is something that makes traveling to Macau for a weekend, the risk-reward to deciding to make that trip is quite challenging. And the 48-hour testing requirement, not insurmountable, but we've seen those get eased in the past with longer windows depending on case counts and those sorts of things. So things are trending in the right direction, but I'll preface all this by saying it's been very volatile over the last couple of years, and 
there's nothing that says we can't go back to more restrictive policies if there's a further outbreak, right? And I think that's what's been challenging for us in terms of forecasting Macau gaming revenue and visitation is you never know when there's going to be another outbreak and you could see a rollback in some of these policies. Okay, so I guess effectively the underlying policy stance is that Macau is adopting the uh, so-called dynamic zero COVID policy that's in place in the mainland China, which I suppose makes a lot of sense since it's the most important market for Macau's tourism industry. There's been a bit of ups and downs in terms of case counts, and that's led to more restrictions, less restrictions. But bottom line is that adherence to this policy does lead to uncertainty in terms of visitation. I'd be curious to know how business planning works for the gaming operators in this environment. Are they expecting the status quo to be in place until there's a fundamental change to zero COVID on the mainland? Or are there certain tweaks that they can do to their business in the meantime to attract tourists and to improve their near-term business prospects? You know, what's interesting and honestly quite amazing is that all of this pandemic business planning and defense posturing and balance sheet management and cash flow management is all happening at the same time as the operators having to think about the next round of concessions, which in and of itself is one of the most material economic decisions and exercises that these companies probably will ever go through, given the importance of these concessions. But on top of that, they had to figure out how to stop the bleeding in a zero revenue environment with a global pandemic going on. For those who don't follow the gaming sector as close as you do, could you sort of walk us through what you mean by uh, the concession bids? What's unfolding in the industry here at the moment that we should be aware of? Absolutely. So Macau government, when they legalized gaming back in 2001, provided the concessions under a 20-year term. So we reached that expiration date actually in this June. There has been a rebidding process for the next round of concessions. And I say reached it in June, and here we are sitting in September. But I need to point out that the government actually extended everybody's concessions to December of 2022 to allow them a little bit more time to complete the rebidding process. And the way to think about it, similar to like a gaming license, it's basically the right to operate the gaming assets in Macau. And those had 20-year terms, which were coming due in middle of 2022. So all these companies have had to put together proposals for why they should get another concession for the next round and to operate it for another 10 years. And these new concessions are going to be for 10 years, unlike the first concessions. Is that right? Correct. The The structure of them is that they're going to be 10-year concessions rather than 20 years because the industry is obviously a lot more mature than it was back in 2001. So the thinking behind that is you don't need as long to generate economic returns on potential investment, whereas before in 2001, when the market was still very young and needed to grow, you needed a little bit longer of a concession period where operators could feel comfortable investing a lot of capital that they could be able to earn returns on that over time. So could we fast forward to the bids themselves? I saw some of the headlines in recent week. It looks like there were seven bidders for what I understand is just going to be six concessionaires. So how do you see the government managing this process and what attributes or factors you think they're going to prioritize in deciding on who's ultimately granted these concessions? 
I'll get into the parameters in a second, but you know, you mentioned the seventh bidder. Uh, there's six operators, six new concessions, and affiliate of Genting, which is a, a very well-known global gaming operator as well, too, with casinos all over the world, including here in the U.S., came in sort of as a surprise bidder. I don't think anybody was truly expecting somebody to come in and try to dislodge one of the incumbents, but sure enough, there was. Um, I think there's a pretty high hurdle for anybody to dislodge any of the incumbent operators just because of how strong the success has been for everybody over the last 20 years in terms of development, economic returns for the operators, uh, the government in terms of seeing an industry get invested in quite heavily and provide a lot of growth opportunities in terms of employment for its local population base, the buying power to small and medium enterprises locally, all six concessions a number of years ago, they had something called midterm reviews. Everybody scored well in terms of delivering on the initial criteria that they were given the concessions under. So there isn't any bad actors or bad apples, if you will, that you could make a a rational case as to why they shouldn't get a new concession. So I think that's what makes it challenging for for a seventh to come in. And just to touch briefly on criteria that they're going to be judged on, uh, everybody got their bids in last week, by the way. Uh, it was actually quite impressive to see all of these boxes dropped off at the at the gaming regulator, covered in very secretive but massive boxes of papers and getting delivered with a lot of high-profile executives there. Uh, but just briefly, the criteria that they're looking are at are plans to expand the customer feeder markets into foreign countries, your experience in operating casinos, the benefits you'll get from investing in gaming and non-gaming projects, your casino management plan, supervision and prevention of illicit activities, broader corporate social responsibility, and then also just the proposed premium on your bid. So um, a little bit different than the criteria back in 2001, but a lot of, a lot of similarities as well too. Uh, but I think it does align nicely with the, the current six operators there being suitable to, to get another concession for the next round. Interesting. You didn't say so explicitly, but based on your comments, it sounds like your base case is that the six operators continue to get the next round of concessions. Just hypothetically speaking, what would be the implication if an incumbent operator loses their license? I mean, do they just have to walk away from their existing Macau assets, or is there some sort of process by which they can sell the assets to the new entrant to the market or something? So this is something we've called out as a quite material event risk uh, for the, the credits that we cover that issue debt related to these Macau entities. And while we do think all six will continue to operate in Macau long term, anything is possible, right? The risk isn't zero that somebody doesn't get their concession renewed. And again, I don't think anybody, we didn't necessarily think that there was going to be a seventh bidder and then surprise Genting comes in and now all of a sudden that creates a conversation about, well, what if they get it over one of the incumbents? Um, but just hypothetically speaking, I'll, we'll play devil's advocate. If an operator's concession expires, so at the end of the term of the current concession, which is December 31st, 2022, if they don't get a new concession, all of the casino premises and gaming equipment gets transferred back to the Macau government without any compensation. This is quite interesting, but to put it in perspective, these operators have generated sufficient economic returns over their 20-year concession term to recoup their investment that they've made. But operationally, it creates a challenge where if somebody doesn't get a new concession, their old one expires, they have to hand 
the casino premises back over to the government and then let's say to a new operator, it's only the gaming operations. So we're not talking about the hotel, F&B, entertainment, retail, those sorts of things. And these are massive integrated resorts, some in excess of a million square feet often. So very, very, very large integrated resorts that need to be operated ideally from an economic perspective in tandem with the rest of the building. So you get to keep your property, the hotel, all of the retail space, but you just, you can't run the casino and all the equipment needed to run the casino needs to be handed over. Correct. But everything else is still part of that original corporate entity. Correct. That's the right way to think about it. Yeah. So you obviously see there's a challenge there, right? If somebody comes in and how disruptive that would be. And and for the existing operators, Hong Kong listed entities, which are usually just parent holding entities with ownership of the Macau concession holding entity down in Macau, those entities issue debt and their only asset is the ownership in the Macau entity. So you can see how losing a license and not being able to run the casino, which generates a majority of the cash flow, could be quite detrimental to the credit profile of those entities that issue debt up at the hold co level. One thing I wanted to ask you about if we pivot back to sort of the recovery is that clearly these companies still see long-term value in Macau, even though the industry is, continues to go through a, a delayed recovery period. So with that in mind, where do you think or how do you think the recovery slope looks like for Macau's gaming industry from here? You know, are we still years away from getting back to pre-pandemic levels in Macau and, and the visitation that we saw? Or how, how does this look like going forward? So the recovery slope, to be honest, has been probably the most challenging forecasting exercise across a lot of our coverage universe, and I would even speak more broadly across the corporate universe globally, because the challenge is initially, we didn't know how long the lockdowns were going to last. So the only thing that we could do at that point was assume some sort of linear recovery. You pick a year and say, okay, well, they can't keep the casinos closed for this long. So we'll assume they reopen by this period and you just assume some sort of linear recovery. But what we've learned is that's actually not the case. The recovery in gaming demand is actually quite quick. And I'll go back to the examples that I mentioned before of the United States, the Las Vegas Strip, places like Singapore, that once people are allowed to more freely travel and spend money, the gaming demand is there. And this is globally across a lot of different markets now that we've seen this. So when we think about Macau, forecasting Macau recovery is extremely challenging right now because we just don't know when the demand is going to snap back. And that's really driven by visitation. So what we've done, we're a rating agency. So we need a conservative set of assumptions that our ratings need to be able to withstand is we're modeling gross gaming revenue to be about 70% of 2019 levels by 2024 and 90% by 2025. So obviously quite conservative and that's quite an elongated recovery trajectory. But a lot of that stems from the fact that it's very difficult to predict when visitation will start snapping back because we've seen that it's not necessarily linear and it's a lot more exponential when you remove a lot of the friction. It's just nobody knows when that's going to happen. I guess that makes a lot of sense. I mean, essentially, this is about predicting a policy change, which is notoriously challenging to predict. 
it sounds like given the experience globally, there will be a snapback, you know, pretty conservative assumptions at the moment because you just don't know when that policy change is going to occur. Right. And don't get me wrong, Macau has always been very difficult to forecast, mainly because the VIP segment, which used to be a lot more of the total pie, if you will, was very volatile. But you at least had the mass market business, which was growing and generally followed China GDP and allowed at least for some base certainty of of how gaming revenues were going to trend. And now when you add in this sort of policy element, like you just mentioned, it, it adds an extra element of challenge. Is it therefore fair to say that you don't really think that Macau's delayed recovery when compared to other global gaming hubs is really going to sort of impede its long-term competitive dynamics relative to other gambling hubs like Singapore or Australia? You mentioned Japan earlier in our conversation. Yeah, I'm not really convinced yet that this delayed recovery in Macau is really going to play structurally into the favor of some of these other broader APEC jurisdictions that do compete for some of the same gamblers. Um, The issue is really, it's getting people in and out of China, right? It's not the case that someone can much easily go to Singapore or Australia, but they can't get to Macau. And I think what really plays into Macau's favor is that it has the best critical mass of integrated resorts with the closest proximity to mainland China. So right there, you have two huge natural competitive advantages over broader APAC. I mean, if you just think about distance to some of these other gaming jurisdictions that compete for the same customers, if you're flying from Hong Kong, you have a two-hour flight to the Philippines, to Cambodia. You have a four-hour flight to Vladivostok, to Tokyo, which will eventually open up its market and is in the process of doing so. You have about a nine-hour flight to Australia. So... Macau is still really the best game in town if you want to go away for a weekend. And not to mention, the critical mass element is very important when it comes to casino gaming. Because if a player feels unlucky, or they're just not feeling a certain table, or they've been losing a good amount, they might want to be able to get up and walk across the street to another casino. And if you're gambling in the peninsula in Macau, you can do that very easily. Kota is a little bit more difficult because the casinos are a little bit more spread out, but you can still walk across the street to get there, but obviously not as as tight-knit as, as the peninsula. But you know, some of these other markets have, have had some success in attracting VIP junket play as, as Macau started cracking down on that business and, and broader China started cracking down on some of that business, you know, in the mid-2010s, you started to see those markets grow a little bit. Maybe they offered better terms, junket terms, uh, commission rates, those sorts of things. But in actuality, those markets never really got above $4 billion. GGR, gross gaming revenue, in terms of US dollars. And as we talked about before, Macau was almost $40 billion heading into the pandemic. So even though some of these other markets have had some success, they still never have gotten to the point where they're even close to the size of Macau. Thank you very much, Colin. I have one more question for you if you have time. Maybe I'll just jump right into it. So Macau's Gaming industry has changed a lot over the past decade or so, uh, certainly since I first stepped foot in Macau, especially along the Kotai Strip. Just from my own anecdotal observations, the properties are larger, there's a lot more non-gaming entertainment. You mentioned earlier that there's a lot more focus on the mass market away from VIPs. There's much better infrastructure connectivity as well along the Greater Bay Area. 
but the economy and the labor market are still heavily dependent on gaming despite ongoing efforts to diversify. My final question for you is really with this background in mind, I'd be curious to know how you see Macau and the gaming sector evolving over the next decade, over the course of this new concession period, which is about to start. I think there's going to be a lot of focus on the non-gaming side and really being able to grow the offerings that Macau has to attract additional tourism, but again, not necessarily just gaming tourism. So I think you'll see a lot of things built out on the entertainment side, on the broader leisure side, which could be a number of different things. When I think about Macau and I'm talking about the operators, right, what could the operators be doing? A good perspective to draw is to how Las Vegas looks. Las Vegas used to be very dependent on gaming revenue. And over time, they dropped the, the revenue mix from gaming down to about a third and grew a lot of hotel revenue and grew a lot of convention revenue and F&B. You saw that convention industry really grow, where now you're a little bit over 20%, uh, I think, of a visitation that comes from conventioners to Las Vegas. And now Las Vegas is doing a great job of attracting sports tourism, right? They have an NFL team. They have professional sports team that are starting to, to go there. They just got a Formula One race for the 2023 season. So they're doing a very good job of driving additional tourism that might not be gaming oriented. Now those people might still game when they go there, which is great, but they're coming there for alternative reasons. And I think that's something that Macau will, over the next decade, likely try to replicate. So it's a lot of entertainment, leisure, food and beverage, possibly sports, those sorts of things. I think over the next decade, things are going to be very interesting in terms of how they play out and how much different Macau could be 10 years from now relative today, because Macau is very different today than it was 20 years ago uh, at the start of the first concession. So it's going to be, it's a very interesting time to be following the sector. And, you know, it's a great place. I'm very much looking forward to getting back and having some egg tarts again. All right. Well, well, thank you very much for your time today, Colin. It's been fantastic speaking with you. Thank you, Andrew. Great speaking with you, too. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings, China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and until next time.